Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hello and welcome back to the Game Football Podcast from The Times. Today we ask, how good is the EFL Cup and do you think it needs B-teams? Elsewhere, what's happened to financial regulation in football? Is the North London derby meaningless? Can City afford to lose at Chelsea? And we talk worst ever defeats. This is The Game. Welcome back to the Game Podcast. I'm Hugh Wisencroft. Joining me this week, Gregor Robertson and Jonathan Northcroft. How are you guys? Very good, you? Good, 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 good. Good week in the Carabao Cup. And I mean that, a positive week in the Carabao Cup. Some good football, um, some, some good matches that went right down to the wire as well. Because this is the time of the year that the EFL Cup usually is getting a bit of a bashing from many in the media over whether it should even exist or whether it should be massively changed. Gregor, you were at Molyneux. It was a, a good game there as well. I think we've got to give the competition some credit, don't we? I think just looking around at, at the, the games this, this week, it's been full of entertainment, the odd surprise. Uh, and despite, you know, there's been a raft of changes, some some really good football. I was, as you say, I was at Molyneux and um, two teams who really are struggling for goals. It was end-to-end. They're 20, cheered 21 efforts, uh, four goals. And some really good performances. I thought, you know, it was a very positive night for Spurs on the whole. Went to a 2 two nil lead uh, with Ndombele and, and Kane getting the goals. And then I kind of stole a little bit of a soft underbelly. Ndombele, <laughs> he's such an enigma, that guy. He kind of, he does some brilliant things. He little shuffles with his feet. And, and as I say, he scored the opener. Uh, and then he just kind of looked like he couldn't be bothered to pick up Dendonka from a corner and Dendonka, Dendonka headed the ball and he sort of swung a leg at it which was a bit weird <laughs> and, then, and then he and then he, he was very casual and he's in the centre circle in the second half and gave the ball away was robbed uh, for the equaliser too so it was a bit of a, a night of extremes for him uh, but Harry Kane was back to his best um, yeah I just think watching that game I thought these look like two teams that don't really have much pressure on them and that can improve the spectacle you know I don't you know obviously the, the competition is the teams want to go far in it but they have other priorities and they both you saw that in the, in the team selections and I just think the shackles are thrown off a little bit and that can also always you know, that can very often make for some some highly entertaining football uh, it's interesting you raised Harry Kane as well I mean lots of teams changing players around the Tottenham Hotspur really need him for the EFL Cup fourth round? I'm not sure he should have been starting. That raised an eyebrow for me. Jonathan, did it raise an eyebrow for you? And what have you made of the football this week? I wasn't actually surprised about Kane starting. I thought it was quite pragmatic management by um, Nuno because if he's, a, he, you know, he's, he's the key, just to state the bleeding obvious, he's the key for Spurs and, and he hasn't started the season well. He hasn't had enough touches, he hasn't had enough opportunities. And he just needs to find some form and, and rhythm as quickly as possible. So it was um, it was an opportunity to, to give him that and he got his goal. So that might help them going into the North London derby. But yeah, a bit, bit like Greg, I, I enjoy, I enjoy the, um, the, 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 the League Cup. I, I, I think I enjoy it probably most in these early rounds, actually. I think it gets a bit it seems to sort of crowd the fixture list once you get later later on. But I think in these stages, you get good open games, you get um, fringe players playing. But, you know, fringe players these days are... I watched the United-West Ham game last night and you were, you were looking at a fully changed United team, but but, but a team of, of, you know, household names and internationals. And then a very motivated... A high class, but also rotated West Ham team. So you get to see these players playing great storylines, decided on the night with penalties if, if, if it goes to a draw. Um, I, I think action's really good at this stage. And it, it, it puzzles me that every year 
we talk about how bad the competition is when I think on the pitch you, you see something different. I think, isn't that because of what you mentioned a little bit earlier on, the latter stages of the yeah. EFL Cup seem to be complained about, particularly by managers and then fans of the biggest teams, because, of course, it's going up against, you know, the weeks that they're in Europe, um, in the knockout stages, for example. Does something need to be done with the EFL Cup? Because our colleague Matt Dickinson, as we speak, is putting down some notes for the Times about how it could be revamped. Do you think it even needs revamping? It's maybe No, it's maybe a scheduling issue because, yeah, it, I think it gets to January and the clubs just have just played that that really, you know, sort of tough um, Christmas period. And then they go into the first round or the third round of the FA Cup. And then all of a sudden you get those... Uh, two-legged semi-finals and at that stage it does seem like overkill um, at a point where everyone's just so tired but that's just scheduling I, I think in these early uh, early rounds it's, it, it, it's great and it's only really the clubs that are in Europe that um, maybe don't feel they, they need um, these extra fixtures but you've also got to see it from the fans point of view and my, my relationship with it changed I suppose when I had kids and I try to take them to Leicester when when we can, and you can't get a ticket for the Premier League matches. Um, the European matches are also kind of difficult to to get tickets for. The but but the you know the the Carabao Cup's a, a great chance to take kids and get a different audience. And and Leicester got a home draw last night, so brilliant. You know we're going to go to the Brighton game. I I, I think I think it's, if there's a fault in it, it's probably scheduling. Maybe. Should look at having it all over and done with by Christmas. You know, may, I don't know. Maybe make it the the kind of culmination of the first half of the season, the kind of showpiece game that's played just before Christmas. That could be the final. Um, that's just a scheduling issue, but um, I wouldn't be doing away with the competition at all. I agree with you on that. I think a twenty third of, of December. EFL Cup final would be magnificent. <laughs> Greg, Gregor, what do you think? Boxing Day final. I, I agree. I think we've just like we've got to accept it for it for what it is now. You know, it's about you might see the emergence of a new talent or two. Uh, you know, Manchester City played a lot of kids. Not every club's going to do that, as Johnny says. You know, although there's a lot of changes, squads are so deep and kind of uh, expensively assembled now that you still know most of the players that are playing. You know, you. Spurs team was still a very strong, despite six changes, a very strong start in 11. Uh, so was Wolves. Um, so I think, yeah, we've got to accept it for what it is. I, you know, always, part of me is kind of, oh God, we're having this conversation again. It's like, <laughs> it's like the changing of the leaves. It's guaranteed and it's a bit tiresome. But the same voices <laughs> keep, you know, Pep Guardiola again, <laughs> the same voices just keep raising doubts about its future. And in particular after the last year or so with, Project Big Picture and Super League and stuff. I still think you know it's quite important to counter that with some of the positives. Well, well, let me let me come in on Pep Guardiola before you come back with the positives, just to outline what he has been saying. He's probably got it wrong for the second time in two weeks when it comes to Manchester City and what's right for the club. Because after begging fans to attend the Etihad, now he's saying that B teams could be the best thing for English football. I'm not sure the Manchester City fans are going to like that one either. He did hand out six debuts in City's 6-1 win over Wickham. Um, but he's basically saying that he's tired of his under-23s winning 5-0 every week and he thinks they should play at Championship or League One level. Now, if there was only some kind of mechanism for these young players to be able to go and play football in the EFL, then maybe Pep Guardiola could use that, hey? But... Um, uh, look, I just found it very bemusing. What did you think, Gregor? Yeah, it's just amazing that he kind of nobody's pulled him aside and said, "Pep, every year you say the same thing, mate. Like, and it's not going down well. So, <laughs> you know, maybe stop it." And I, you know, I have some oh, Do I have sympathy? You know, as you say, he's given debuts that should be seen as an opportunity, and it, it was. You know, to give these guys a chance. I, I made my debut in the League Cup. There's until you see these guys playing in first team football in that environment you know you've not learned something there's something you still to learn about them and as you say you can send some of your, your best players on loan and they will develop that way and you can hoard less players fewer players that that's another <laughs> another important thing to talk about so yeah i mean you know so, so it's often spoken about should the you know should the teams that play in europe be be given be allowed to bail from this competition that's kind of one suggestion and then you read that 
60% of the EFL's TV revenue comes from this competition. And how would that be affected by the absence of the biggest clubs in the country? Quite dramatically, I would suggest. So, no, they shouldn't be allowed to bail from the competition. They should just accept it for what it is. And they can still play, they can play some of the youth team players, some of the reserves, still get, they've won it, what have they won it? Six out of the last eight seasons or something. Is that right? I think only City and Chelsea have broken their monopoly in the last, since, since, uh, was it Swansea? 2012. So, like, it's working pretty well for them, <laughs> you know. Even though they've got all this hardship about about who to play and how to fit, you know, how to fit these games into the schedule, they're doing not bad. I don't think he's got anything to complain about. Yeah, United and, and Chelsea, I think the only people that have broken City's handle over this competition. Um, he also complained about the three subs rule, Jonathan and Pep Guardiola, which again. I just have no sympathy thought when you have probably the most expensively and maybe even the, the, the highest quality squad in the history of football to say, oh, well, I can only make three substitutions. What can I do in the EFL Cup when you've got such depth? Yeah. I know. I mean, look, let's, let's face it. The, the, the big clubs and, and, and Pep's probably the one that articulates it more than the others, but I'm sure they all think that, you know, they want to have unlimited squads. They want to be able to, to put these guys on the pitch wherever they want. They want to be able to sign everybody. They want to hoard the talent. Um, and and essentially, they want to, they, they kind of want to do what they like. And, and things like, um, you know, football competitions that everyone else has to, that they have to play in like everyone else kind of annoy them sometimes. And that, that's what it sounds like. You know, what does he want? A 50-man 50, 50 squad, 20 subs every EFL game, B teams. That, you know, it, 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 English football obviously it's about more than just these big six clubs, and we kind of let them run the narrative sometimes. And I think, as we've been saying, that this this is a competition that, that that's beneficial across the board, and I don't think it's that big an encumbrance upon them. In fact, I'm, I'm baffled as to why you know he, he played those six debutants. Isn't that great? You know, look look at Liverpool, Liverpool. Maybe seem to have a slightly different attitude towards it. Klopp's quite positive about it, but what, Liverpool got so much out of that game at Norwich. You know, Cade Gordon making his debut, um, players like Bradley and Morton playing and, and going away to Carrow Road and and winning a, winning a match. I mean, you know, Chelsea got to play the likes of um, got Ross Bartley on the pitch and Loftus Cheek. I think it's really good for the big clubs. I can't actually see what they're complaining about. To be to be quite honest. I, 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 it makes me just think they're never, never going to be happy. It's just as important what this competition means to Wickham, who went there and you know took the lead, and their fans were in kind of you know dreamland for a few moments, <laughs> or Wimbledon, who for the first time since the Reformation have gone to play Arsenal at the Emirates, took eight thousand fans in a midweek. Like obviously this matters for them, and that, that matters just as much as the schedule or what Pep Guardiola's got to say. So. You know, also, there's the financial aspect. You look at a couple of years ago, Rochdale uh, took Man United to penalties. I think they, won, they, they made half a million quid that year from the competition. So, uh, you know, those things matter just as much. Mm, mm. Should point out, Gregor said since their reformation rather than the reformation. Yeah, reformation. <laughs> One hell of a historical reference point to use on a football <laughs> podcast. <laughs> yes, that's just being from the, the west coast of Scotland. They're always talking about the reformation. Johnny's kids, as, yeah, exactly. Johnny's kids, as you can hear as well, warming up their lungs for their trip to the King Power, but they won't be seeing Manchester United. They were knocked out by West Ham at Old Trafford, no less. Pressure once again on the Manchester United boss, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. But can he really be criticised, Johnny, for making 11 changes when they were all full internationals? Isn't this more about the players on the pitch than the manager on the touchline? I think he had to make the changes. Uh, I mean, th- this was this was a big game for the likes of Donny van der Beek and for Anthony Martial, for Nemanja Matic. Um, Alex Tellers. I mean, <clears throat> the, the, this he had to get those guys on the pitch, um, and most of them, most of them let let themselves down. Particularly Martial, who um, is is just an endless uh, enigma of a footballer. Uh, and I, I, you know, I, I actually love watching him when he's playing well and he gets on the pitch, and you hope he has one of his good nights. And so often these days, he doesn't. And 
you know, there was a there was a sort of horrible contrast with his performance and Jared Bowen's for for West Ham at the other end. But um, yeah, it, look, it wasn't a good, it wasn't a great night for for Ollie, obviously, because he needs to win a he needs to win a trophy this year, and this this was another opportunity gone. But I think I think the, the bigger takeaway was um, you know that that, that Martial's career is very much in crisis. That one matter, I'm not sure, is um, is really a top-class Manchester United footballer anymore and athletically just seems to have gone um, and if there was a positive Van der Beek had a really good game um, and played in a sort of deeper uh, deeper role which might be an option going forward getting him as a, in a sort of more of a number eight role um, but no what, West Ham were very good I'd have to say as well um, and that it, it, it spoke a lot about the culture at that club uh, and the appetite that, that David Moyes has, has been able to foster. Um, and maybe that was the uncomfortable contrast for United, that their B players didn't, um, they didn't show the same um, values and appetite that, that, that West Ham did. And that's, that's a slightly uncomfortable question because que- you know, what Solskjaer's got to do this year is, is keep a lot of star players happy. And when you put them on, when you put the B guys on the pitch, you'd hope that they show exactly the right sort of attitude and, and, and appetite and, and they didn't quite. So that was, that was an uncomfortable sort of takeaway for them. Is there a sense that there's a lack of control over the squad um, with Manchester United? What I mean is there's no real feeling of what the best 11 is right now. And even the second 11, you know, when you change up the combinations that you need when you have a deeper squad, aren't really there either. Now that might take time because there are new players in the squad, but I think there is a, there is a feeling for me, someone who supports Manchester United, that the players outside the starting, you know, 14, 15 best players are all in a bit of a quandary over what their futures at the club might be. And the manager doesn't really have, as he's shown us in the past, particularly with the Europa League final, doesn't have that element of trust with a lot of those players, including the likes of, of Van der Beek. What do you think, Gregor? I think you're right. There's there's a kind of cohort of players that you're you wouldn't say they're part of Manchester United's long term future, and I think they know that. And I would also say that their their exit from this competition is not going to do United any favours in keeping them sort of happy or feeling part of the group. You know, giving them opportunity, giving them minutes this season. So, you know. You, as much as we're talking about the clubs have other priorities, it can be quite valuable sometimes if you have a big squad with with, with players that you need to keep satisfied and, and give minutes and keep sharp, actually, keep ready if, if, if they're needed, uh, to have these games coming along. Um, so, yeah, I think, you know, Martial is kind of probably the leading, <laughs> the leading cast member in that, in that cohort. He, <laughs> we've spoken about it so many times over the years in this, uh, and, just sometimes you see him, you think he's gonna he's gonna burst into life, and you're gonna see him realise his potential. And then other times you think he's got he's got no chance at United. And I think I don't know. I think I think probably we're, it's time that the club's probably drawn to a close one way or another now. But yeah, we'll see exactly who does lift the EFL Cup this season. But we know it won't be Manchester United. Still, though, was a really good week for the EFL Cup in terms of the action out there on the pitch. We're going to talk a little bit about the EFL next because Reading is set to be deducted between six and nine points. We'll look ahead to the North London derby and the big game at the top of the Premier League table between Chelsea and Manchester City a little bit later on. But remember, if you're enjoying the podcast, rate us, leave us a review and make sure you're subscribed. To the EFL next then, Reading are set to be deducted between six and nine points for breaching financial rules. The Championship Club are already under a type of transfer embargo for breaching profit and sustainability regulations, limiting them to free transfers and loans. Reading's reported £41 million wage bill in the 2018-19 season is said to have equated to 194% of their turnover. Gregor, that is an, an an all too familiar and all too worrying story for the EFL. Yeah, although that is kind of breaking new ground, I think, in terms of wage to turnover ratio. That's just it's extraordinary. Um, yeah, it, I think it's just this season. You're you're suddenly looking at the championship and thinking, 
the comp where's the competition? You, there's a good chance we've got here. We've got two two relegated teams, or two teams facing a very you know Derby look to be relegated, and Reading would face a, a challenge now because last season uh, Vlejko Paunovic came in and did a remarkable job in the circumstances, and they looked like they were going to make the playoffs, and they fell short at the end. Um, but that really was like a sticking plaster over this, and it was always this was always coming down the track. They, they since since they were uh, bought by Dai Young, uh, a Chinese businessman in in 2017, he's just thrown so much money at it, and there's been z- zero transparency as well. He's never he's so secretive. He's never given a an interview to the to the media. Um, they they follow Derby County in selling their their stadium to try and comply with profit and sustainability regulations, and the thing we're seeing about this now is that, particularly with Derby, is that they they have gone into administration, but by by the looks of it, the the company that owns the stadium hasn't. So Derby are now uh, trying to raise funds without their biggest asset on the books, so they're in serious danger. And the same would be true of any of these clubs who've who followed Derby's, uh, you know, tactics in in trying to circumnavigate the the spending rules, and Derby and, and Reading are the same. So you know, they, they Dai Young's put in a lot of money. He's built in a not a huge uh, state of the art academy. They've producing some really good players at Reading. Um, one of one of whom is Michael Lisi, who was who was sold. Uh, Omar Richards gone to Bayern Munich. There's a good a good list of players who they've who've, they've brought through, and he spent a lot of money. I think almost fifty million on on an academy mm. complex. But <laughs> their 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 other major asset is now in a in a separate company, and you know the, one of these days one, this is going to come home to roost for 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 a football club. It might be Derby. It may be, may be Reading when the day comes that Dai Young th- thinks I'm going to stop putting my millions into to support the football club, but just like Mel Morris did, which we need to be clear about. What do you think, Jonathan? Well, I mean, the root, the root cause is, 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 as we know, it's the, it, it's the, the, the gambling to, to try and get to the, the promised land. I guess the, given, given how often we're having to see these things happening and how much more serious it seems to be becoming now. Because as Gregor mentioned, we're now in a situation where you've got two clubs who've, you know, selling your stadiums like your kind of last resort to try and balance the books. And it, seem, it almost seems like we're getting the same pattern, but more extreme now, where we've got two clubs, in championship clubs, good Premier League histories in the not too recent past, now facing points deductions with their biggest assets gone and an uncertain future. So it seems like, we're, you know, rather than getting better, we're getting more extreme. And, and I guess it's it just makes me think that um, much as I hate the idea of outside regulation, that's the only thing that's going to that's gonna solve this. Um, you know, 18 months ago, David Baldwin was the new EFL chief executive and, and had a go at trying to bring in across the leagues, you know, salary controls and proper ownership tests and, and you know, really strict regulations. And in the end, it was a championship that, that, that blocked it. Those clubs didn't want to vote for it because they wanted to be free to chase the dream, I guess. Um, it makes me think if they, can't, if they can't sort it out, you know, sadly, and I suppose it has to be the government, Probably, we'll have to try and regulate this. I, I, I can't. I can't see the clubs themselves and the EFL, you know, as the body that brings the clubs together. I just can't see them solving it because, you know, the fact is they haven't been able to, and it's getting worse. Gregor, firstly, do the EFL take a lot of the blame from this? Do you agree with the outside regulation? And is there an answer? Is there an answer in the in the not too distant future? For all of this, I think it's. I think the kind of the the extent to which it's they've they've kind of bared their teeth has changed. It's fluctuated. You know, there's been times where they've really cracked down on on clubs, and there's been times. I think there's been inconsistencies with the ways that they've they've dealt with this and kind of um, you know policed policed the, the competition and the way they've read their regulations. Uh, so. Yes, I don't think I don't think they're essentially fit for perfect for, for purpose. 
Um, but at the same time, the, you have to look at the, the broader picture. It's the, the the gulf without the gulf between the Championship and the Premier League. This issue wouldn't be as as acute because the way the Premier League see of 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 um, of kind of bridging that gulf is by giving huge subsidies to the teams who are relegated 40, 40 odd million in the first year, you know, up to three years of, of huge, huge parachute payments that skew the competition and then make clubs like Reading and Derby have to wildly overspend to try and compete and trying to try to make it to the Premier League. Reading, Reading are losing, been losing like 40 million a year, basically 40 million pounds a year in losses a year. <laughs> it's insane. It's truly insane. Like it, it, it can't go on any longer. And then, because the numbers are swelling ever, you know, ever, ever larger, it's kind of. I think it's making the the danger. It's kind of imperiling the clubs even more because if if the owner decides to to stop funding the club, it, you're you're so reliant on on one man or you know the owner the owner of the football club. If they stop to if they stop funding them, then even if Derby have gone into administration now, it doesn't wipe the debts anymore. You still ha- you have to pay back, you have to pay back H- HMRC now. Derby owe them twenty six million pounds. So whoever comes in to Derby still has to pay that. They still have to pay twenty up to at least twenty five percent to the unsecured creditors. They still have to pay any outstanding loans that are secured against the asset. So you know whoever comes into Derby has fifty million quid to deal with. So you, Mel Morris can walk away now. He decides to walk away, but he leaves fifty million pounds of liabilities. The numbers are extortionate, and that reduces that that kind of recaps who can come in. You know, the, the the supporters trust have got are given twenty eight days to try and form a to say you know you're allowed to try and and uh, form a consortium or, or make a bid for the club. <laughs> Which supporters can can cobble together fifty million quid to save their football club? It's just it's gone to cloud cuckoo land. Premier League aren't going to vote to reduce the gap. They're not going to vote to have less money and give more at the Championship. The Premier League are, are struggling to stay together. They're struggling to keep six big clubs together with the other other fourteen. They're, you know, they, they they've got they, they cannot <laughs> look beyond that at the moment. Um, so that I don't think that, that that's that's not going to change. So they have to be made yeah. to. Well, so that's, 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 that's to do it for them. That's where the outside regulation comes in, isn't it? Because. Because the clubs want to do it themselves, and the EFL are just the clubs. Also, they are just the the, the seventy two clubs. At the end of the day, so it just makes me think that something has to happen from outside. And there was a great energy when the European Super League happened. There would seem to be great energy across the country to sort out. And, and the pandemic, we had Rick Parry yeah. talking about how everything needed upheaval. There needed to be a an independent regulator. I mean, where's that gone? But and where's it gone among among fans as well? You know, the people not mm. care anymore. Well, the surprise mm. was the surprise during all that turmoil was that even fans of the biggest clubs like Manchester United were starting to voice these things. That was like, oh, this is new. The, the will is still there throughout the rest of the pyramid in, in support of of that. But you know, you, the, the other thing is, you know, I read a, a thing, a, a piece, quite persuasive piece in a, a rival publication for the weekend, saying why. Why should the Premier League bail out clubs like Derby and owners like Mel Morris? And you've got to kind of think, yeah, well, maybe you're right. But the answer is because it could be you. As soon as you fall off the cliff edge, you could be the, the guy trying to chase the riches. Uh, and I think I think the Premier League clubs, apart from, as Johnny's saying, you know, there's a split even in the Premier League, but I think the Premier League clubs are wrong to assume that the, that the TV revenue is theirs because it's not if you fall out of the... If you fall out of the top twenty, it's not their money. It's it should be seen as oh, clearly you get the you should get the biggest share of the pie if you're in the competition. And if you're in it, you know the argument, the, the reason for uh, Project Big Picture was because clubs like Manchester United and Liverpool and whatnot think that they are the drivers of the revenue. But without the competition, without the teams they they have to play against, without the jeopardy of relegation, which is a huge part of its value. Uh, the Premier League is not worth as much. It's not the same spectacle. So it, it, there just needs to be an acceptance that everyone kind of actually needs each other and a healthy pyramid. The, the damage that the Premier League is doing to the rest of the pyramid is is really, really reaching kind of crisis level now. Um, 
I even see it with with the I've said this before many times that the extent to which clubs are reliant upon Premier League clubs for their players like you know you, they can decide whether a team are promoted or not by who they give to their who they loan out every season the, the power is just too extreme now so this isn't new but it's just again we're seeing the, the numbers are new the numbers are big are getting so so big and we're soon going to see and it could be Derby let's be brutally honest about it who's going to come in with 50 million quid for Derby without any assets to sell just now Derby are in big trouble so it could take a really really kind of huge moment and a club like that being lost before it was I, although I say it again before there's change it shouldn't take that it shouldn't take that but it might we might be seeing Manchester City's B team in the championship very, very soon. Pep Guardiola might get his wish in the end. We're going to move on from the EFL onto the Premier League next, though. That was an important discussion, I know. And we're going to talk about the top end of the Premier League, of course, and these big teams that might have helped cause the issue. But there is a big North London derby coming and a top of the table clash at Stamford Bridge. That is next on The Game. 1-size-fits-all-seemed-like-a-good-idea-for-clothes-nice-dress-uh-it's-a-it's-a-t-shirt-until-you-tried-it-on-same-goes-for-your-health-care-that's-why-united-healthcare-offers-a-variety-of-fl
I mean, they both need it. Sorry, you as an offence, but like, yeah. <laughs> but you know, Nuno. Uh, I've seen. The, I saw. I was. At, I was at the Ren game, and I saw Chelsea weekend, and then I was at the the Wolves game the other night. So I've watched them quite closely in the last week. And last last night was certainly a, a great, a huge improvement for them. In that there was kind of there seemed to be a bit more fluidity in their sort of movement up up top, particularly. Although Chelsea and, and Brian Gill were kind of coming in, finding a lot of pockets of space between the lines from the wing. Daily Alley was taking up good positions. I thought they were actually good in midfield in the first half. Skip and Dombele and Daily Alley, and they were kind of combining really well. And Wills couldn't really get to grips with that. And I think you know that's been that's been one of the biggest criticisms levelled at, at Nuno's Spurs so far is their kind of lack of crea- creativity. And they had, you know they created twelve chances last night. The um, that first half an hour in particular, they they there was a lot of creativity. And Dombele, the thing with I've said, I've referenced it already, and Dombele can be the kind of spark for a lot of that, but you just see other moments in his game and you think, you know, he's sometimes a bit of a risk to actually to have him on the pitch um, because he tries things that are, you know, he looks like he's playing in the in the park, which is a joy to watch sometimes, but if you're doing it kind of risky positions around you, you know, inside your own half, then it can backfire. So... There's certainly a lot to iron out for for Spurs, but I think that was a step forward last night. I thought game was game was much improved as well. Um, and Arsenal, I think I honestly think it's about getting their getting their best players on the pitch again, getting Thomas Partey back fit and playing, um, forming a combination between White and Gabriel at the back. Um, you know, Odegaard finding his feet, getting Aubameyang. So, but I think I think a lot of it for both of these teams is just. Getting their best players something cl- something close to to performing to to the levels they can because I think there's been a lot of instances a lot of players throughout the team you could pick out through both teams who haven't been doing that. Um, but it's a strange. I feel I find that both teams are in a kind of strange position going into this North London derby. They're both kind of quite a bit of an unease, isn't there, about about both teams and the and the atmosphere and the direction of travel. Um, you know that, that's not. That's not anything really new, but so early in the season, it's quite a surprise. Were you surprised, Gregor, about their approach in midfield when Thomas Partey returned? It seemed to be one holder and two more advanced central midfielders. I think a lot of that's to do with the opposition, to be honest. Um, I wouldn't be surprised. I think if, if, if Jack is, uh, if, I think he's back from suspension. Is, he, is that right? Um, so I wouldn't be surprised if he's back in. Oh, no. Go on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, well, yeah, no, let's not start that again. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised if he goes back in there alongside Thomas Partey. Um, if you're Mikel Arteta, is that a good sign for the fans? You know, are they going to be disappointed that you're not trying to carry the game, especially at home against your North London rivals? I don't necessarily think that because you play two players there, um, you know, two kind of holding midfielders rather than one is necessarily a negative approach. If you look at if they've got, say, Saka in front of them, Rowe or Pepe, Odegaard, Aubameyang, there's still still a lot of attacking uh, players on the, on the pitch there. And and Partey can advance, I think, too. I think he's someone who can be yeah. a box-to-box midfielder for Arsenal. I don't think he's just a destroyer. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't be too... It's about finding a balance, however you set up there. And I think the same is true of Spurs. I, I like Skip. I think he started the season well, and he he Spurs had a lot of attacking players on the pitch last night. If you, you on Dumbly was alongside him, but obviously he was advancing, and Skip was the man who was always there to clear it up. And he was it was Skip. It was a really strong Skip challenge that that led to Ndombele's goal. And to be fair to Ndombele, he charged down corner Cody, won the ball himself, and went through and finished brilliantly. So I just think it's about having the right balance there, and whether Ndombele is the man to <laughs> who can be relied upon and the other going the other way is the big question for Spurs. I think Tottenham Hotspur are in a better position than Arsenal at the moment. I don't think I'm sticking my neck out by saying that. But 1-0 to the Arsenal is back. Some of the new signings look like they could work out, certainly starting to settle as well. And, and a question for me is, if Mikel Arteta loses... Four games out of the opening six will have been defeats. Does the does the conversation around his future come back, especially as 
this game means so much to the Arsenal supporters? I think it, it does. Um, I mean, to, to give him the, I guess, the positive spin, there are signs that the, the defensive side's coming together. I think they said, I'd liked Ben White as a signing from the start. Makes a lot of sense. And Gabriel's a good player. So I think they've got the beginnings of a good young centre-back partnership. Tommy Yasu has settled in well and Kieran Tierney's an excellent player. So there is a start of, a, there's a start of something. There's a back four there. Not sure about Ramsdale ahead of Leno, but okay. But there's a back four there. Well, I I think the thing with Arteta that, that, that for me puts him under pressure and, and makes you doubt is just this, he's been there long enough and you want to see what the evolution is. So, okay, we've got back four now, but what's happening in front of it? That's that, that's that, that in his whole time, that's what I'm, I've been trying to figure out. What's his plan? How do you want to create goals? How do you want to play? You know, is it, what, is he pressing? Is he, is he, is he possessing the ball? Um, is he is he switching players? Is he getting it wide? I, I I'm still not entirely sure. And I, if I was an Arsenal fan, I'd be looking at Smithrow and Odegaard, brilliant, brilliant talents. Maybe slightly similar, but brilliant talents. Can he get them together? Um, Partey's the best centre midfielder they've got, so he's got to play. Sambi Lokonga surely the future instead of um, Granit Xhaka. So it, 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 though that's what you want to see taking shape beyond something like even I mean I mean the result is really important to North London derby but I, I think more than anything with Arteta it, you know you're almost two years into the job that's that's what's got to start happening and he's got two one nils so there's something to start building on there he's got his back four arguably um, but I really would be looking at you know I mean a lot of clubs would love to have Odegaard Smithrow and Saka as three talents you know so that it, it's that that thing that's missing you know it, it's that lack of identity lack of plan um lack of direction of travel um that that, that we need to see from him beyond the result of, of of the game i'd agree with you on that in the game against norwich the goal was pretty fortunate scored by pierre emerick Aubameyang, a couple of re- ricochets drops to him in front of an open net and a free kick to win the last game from Martin Erdegaard. Scoring from open play is something that we don't really see Arsenal as having a difficulty doing. And yes, they've created chances, but they haven't put the ball away. And I don't think it's going to get much easier against Tottenham Hotspur, although they do have a pretty new defence as well. Um, Gregor, just because you've watched Tottenham in the last week or so, we mentioned him a couple of times. Harry Kane, you said he was back to his best against Wolves. What was the difference? Because he hasn't been in their previous matches. I think, um, although, he, you know, there's been a lot of spoke about the way he kind of, he's been dropping deep to try and get involved in play. I think I think the difference, he did that occasionally last night, but it was more often than not he was playing on the shoulder. There was, his first second goal was was brilliant, a brilliant move. Uh, skipping to Luchelso, lay off to Deli Alley and first time, and Kane was on the shoulder already going and he took it beautifully in his stride and finished clinically as we always know. But that I think having him playing on the shoulder like that and having more fluid fluidity of of the movement behind him is the key. I think it's a lot the reason why he's coming deep to get on the ball is because he's not he's not been getting any service. I think when when there's more there's more creative creativity and craft behind him, uh, then you'll see Harry Kane with the facing goal, which is where you want to see him. So, you know, I I just thought he was he was he was full of energy, full of running, chasing chasing lost causes. He could have had more goals. He, he had a song came on, whipped on a, a second, uh, whipped inside a second second half cross, and and John Roddy made an excellent save from his header. Um, I just I think he looked kind of full of energy. That's the main thing. The other thing is the question mark about how he's you know his body language and. Playing, you know, playing in a team that's losing three 0 to Chelsea after you've just seen a, a dream move fall apart. So, uh, you know, I think you could, you could, if that stretches out longer and longer, then there's going to be more and more questions about his future. And but if he's, he looked like he was, he was up for it last night, and he, and uh, I thought he performed well. Does this feel pretty unpredictable? Does anyone think one side's definitely going to take all three points, Johnny? No, it's, it, 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 it's, it, I think it is a little bit unpredictable. Um, and it just just something Greg, Greg just mentioned that Chelsea game. I mean that that is the thing that strikes me is that I do what I do expect is to see um, you know I'm, I'm going to be at the Man City Chelsea game on Saturday. I do expect a significant drop 
in the level from from that match to the North London derby, and that's sad. I think Spurs can win this game, but they you know they couldn't they couldn't lay a glove on Chelsea, and that, that that's kind of where we are with this fixture, which is which is a bit which is a bit sad. It's it, it's probably a bit of a mid table fixture at the moment, um, and uh, hard hard one hard one to call quite honestly, um, but just not it's it's it's, it's just. You know, has there been a has there been a less relevant North London derby in terms of the the mix at the top? Not for a long time. Mm, mm, tend to agree with you on that one. Let's get into the mix at the top, though, because a game that will hold relevant is a game you've just mentioned. The game at Stamford Bridge as Chelsea host Manchester City. A win for Chelsea would open up a six-point gap between them and the defending champions. But you've got to bear in mind, if Manchester United and Liverpool also win this weekend and City were to lose, they'd be six points behind Liverpool, City and United. That is not a position, I think, Manchester City want to be in at this early stage of the season. So, Gregor, the question is, should City be pleased with a point? I don't think a point would be a disaster for them at all, no. You know, they started slowly last season and they obviously went on a an outstanding run whether they're going to have the opportunity to do that and still be you know I think Chelsea will will be you know will be hard to hard to hard to top this season so uh, I don't think they can let that gap become too big but I don't think a draw would be would be a disaster in any any shape or form because Chelsea are just looking ominously good and um, you know City have got a few players few players out um, and They've not really hit their kind of peak form in the same way that Chelsea looked of so far this season. So, um, you know, Pep, as much as we've spoken about Pep's moanings that have been unjustified earlier in the podcast, he's right in that they, you know, they had no preseason, uh, a lot, not much time in preparation on the training ground. Uh, you know, players absent. Players had long summers. I think we kind of predicted there was a lot of predictions at the start of the season that City would be one of these teams that p- probably took a, f- took a little while to hit their stride this season in the Premier League. And I think that's proven to be the case. Three-goal win on the opening day for Chelsea. Two-goal win against Arsenal. They held on against Liverpool for a draw with 10 men. They scored three against Villa, three against Spurs as well. Um, but, but I still think that if they can win this game... This is probably going to be the one that sends the biggest warning shot. If the draw at Anfield with 10 men wasn't enough, beating Manchester City would be the real signal that they are going to be the ones to beat this season. Is it, Jonathan, do you think? Yeah, I think I, I think it would. Would it be four consecutive wins be City as well? Something like that? I mean, um, they are an, they're an outstanding... Not, I was going to say team that's now standing squad at the moment, actually, with an incredible manager. And um, there doesn't seem to be a lot of chinks in the armour at the moment. And if City can't expose them uh, and they've already played Liverpool at Anfield, then you start to wonder, you know, you start to wonder where the weaknesses are. By the way, Liverpool, so you know, I think they're right up there as well. So they've got to be in the conversation. But um, it would be a big statement win for, for Chelsea if they could pull it off. City, what a week for them. You know, they, they, they play Chelsea, then they play PSG and then they play Liverpool. So we're going to find out a lot about City this week. Um, I guess they got De Bruyne and Foden back on the pitch on Tuesday uh, from the start, which was which was huge. So you'd expect them to be um, a different entity. I, I'm not sure if they can afford to give um, too much ground early in the season like they did last season, simply because the teams that they would be trying to chase are that much better than last season's, um, you know, Premier League. Um, and it, you're trying to, they'd be trying to chase Liverpool and Chelsea and not just trying to reel in one contender. Whoa, 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 whoa. And Oli Gunnar Solskjaer's Manchester United. And John. I was about to mention that, of course, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and Graham Potter's Brighton. So, yeah. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, I, I, I think there's less leeway for them. And, and I think... A, a draw would actually be if they could escape with a draw, and then go into this PSG and 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 um, and Liverpool games unscathed. I think that would be a decent result for them. It's an intriguing contest. Do you think, Gregor, this is any more predictable than the North London derby? Predictable. It's not, not easy to predict. I think she, I would I would favour Chelsea though. And it's going to be interesting the way the way that you know you're right. What you say about 
City's attack. And the, the games last season, the second half of last season, it's fascinating the way Chelsea's back three were so brave in going, you know, they, they, if you're not playing with an out-and-out striker, then you have five or six players on front. It almost kind of neutralises, or the theory, so the theory goes, neutralises Chelsea's back three. You, the players play in front of them and they look to, you know, combine, make of combinations on front of Chelsea's back three and then break through them. Chelsea's, Chelsea's defenders just went straight in. They were so brave. They went, they followed Sterling, they followed, uh, I think it might be in Jesus, they followed, you know, they followed the wingers, maybe Mares, followed them right up the pitch and like almost kind of went man to man and, uh, you know, allowed the space in behind and kind of, you know, just, just were confident enough to say that we can deal with the balls in behind too. So it will be interesting to see how, how Chelsea try and kind of, I don't think they can do that again. I think, I think, uh, City, sorry, I don't think they can do that again. I think Chelsea were, they, they both managed to sit deep and absorb pressure and also they managed to be very brave and play high up the pitch at the same time. I think you're right to pick on that, Greg, because that's it's that very thing that spooked Pep into um, picking the Champions League final team that he did and trying to go with, you know, five number 10s and no, nothing else or whatever, whatever the formation was supposed to be because he was spooked by having played Tuchel's Chelsea um, three times, I think it had been, and, and not really being able to to lay enough of a glove on them. And he's, you know, he obsesses about creativity and possessing the ball in the right areas and 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 getting um, between the lines. So he played, you know, he played Foden and De Bruyne and 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 and, and without the holding midfielder to try and get men into those areas. So. Um, whether he can do something different that's maybe slightly less madcap, but but get that get that creativity, I'm not sure. That'll be the that'll be the tactical side of things that'll that'll be interesting. There's probably no reason for Tuchel to, to particularly to change the defensive approach that's 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 worked the brave the brave approach as you say, Gregor, that's worked so well against City. I think it's going to be a brilliant game this weekend in the Premier League. We will reflect on that on Monday's episode of the game. Big one coming at Stamford Bridge. Before we go, I just wanted to reflect on sad news this week that the former Newcastle and Wimbledon manager Joe Kinnear is in the late stages of dementia. His family have spoken to the media this week telling about his diagnosis back in 2015. Really sad news. Our well wishes go to him and all of his family, of course. But there is an interesting game happening this weekend. Spennymore Town are hosting a unique game this weekend alongside charity Head for Change and the Solon Connor Fawcett Trust to restrict heading to the penalty area alone. This is, of course, to raise awareness around uh, football and dementia and the link therein. Do you think this is the future, Gregor, only heading the ball in the box? I don't know. I just feel that this is a conversation that's that's uh, going to grow louder and louder. We'll see Joe Kinnear was my manager at Nottingham Forest uh, for, for about a year. Um, you know, we're seeing players of it was always a very distant generation that this seemed to affect and then the the, the idea that it was an old heavy football kind of is a myth that's been debunked now um so I, it's it's going to i think it's going to be a fascinating experiment the first half is heading only in the in the penalty area and then the second half it's heading outlawed entirely so you know it's always everyone kind of throws their arms up in in the in disgust when people raise the prospect of, of limiting heading in football. And I, you know, <laughs> I'm not, I wouldn't say I was a, a supporter of this, but it, it was going to be a fascinating experiment. And I think it's interesting to try and consider what football would look like with limited heading. Do you agree, Johnny? Yeah, I do. I can't help feeling that football will be a worse spectacle without heading. Um, but that, but that, that may be the price that's worth paying. Um, I, I just it, it, the news about joking is so sad, and 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 it just adds to the sadness of of um, that the you know all the all the different members of that generation that have suffered this terrible um, disease illness um, in, in their later life after playing, and and it's it's it just feels like it's becoming unarguable that um, that there has to be a link, and I. 
you know, I can't see football being as good without heading, but I can still see it being an incredible game. And we've probably got to try and um, see what it looks like. And if, 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 if it's something that has to be given up, it has to be given up uh, to protect to protect players. Um, and it'll be fascinating to see what happens, what, what this game looks like um, at the weekend. As I say, this always seems to have been something that's discussed about generations of, of many years gone by. But it seems to be gradually moving into slightly more recent generations mm. and as I say the research shows that it's not just the old heavy balls it's force um, and for that, I have to be brutally honest for the first time in the last six months to a year I've started thinking I mean heck, this could affect me I played football for 15 years I was a defender had a lot of footballs um, so absolutely would you join the study because there were a couple of studies running you know, and they are desperate for, for former professional footballers to come. You get your brain scanned, I think, once a year. They monitor the changes throughout your life. If you do eventually get dementia, you'll at least know very, very early. Would you join one of those? Yeah, it's not, I will be honest, it's something I've not, I've not really thought about, but I would certainly be open to that. Um, I just think that this is, this is important. I think probably, it, as I say, I think it's always been thought of as something that affected players in the past of a certain generation, but all the evidence suggests that it's not going to, it's, they will continue to affect players. Um, and so, so experiments like this are valuable. I agree. I, I would hate to see heading banned from football. I think limiting it, limiting it in, in training, although, you know, I've written about this, you don't head the ball that much in training anyway. That that's a, that's a starting point. Uh, and that's you know that's obviously coming, but experiments like this are are valuable. Let's, let's see what <laughs> let's see what the game would look like. I think it'd be a good game to be at on Sunday. Some old some old vets. I'm not I'm not I'm not sure I'm not sure what they'd be feeling like heading the ball anyway. But um. <laughs> well, listen, it'll be an interesting one. We'll see if we can get some clips over the weekend and and some reaction to that. See exactly how it goes. Uh, finally, before we go though, I did want to just ask you both a couple of questions about. I mean, slaughterings, let's just call it that. Hendon FC tweeting this week that they beat Hammersmith FC, you know, by the modest scoreline of 36-0. Um, the biggest one-sided game I think I've ever seen reported. Uh, just wanted to ask you guys about your memories of one-sided matches that you've either been at or, Greg, played in. Jonathan, I'll start with you. Well, I mean, the one that just absolutely will take, I'll, I'll take to the grave is, is Brazil 1, Germany 7 in the 2014 World Cup. I was there. It was an ex just an unbelievable um, game to watch as a host nation and the Brazil of all countries just being humiliated and dismantled the way they were. It was 5-0 Germany after 29 minutes. Um, it was, I'm, I'm sure to this day, something happened to make Germany ease off, whether they got a tap on the shoulder but from FIFA at half-time um, or they just pragmatically thought, you know what, let's just... You know, let's, let's be good visitors and not embarrass the hosts too much. But they they kind of played that much intensity in the second half. Still, Andre Shirley still scored two more goals to add to the, the the five in Brazil. I think it might have even been Gabriel Jesus scored in the very last minute. Um, it was Oscar, sorry, as a, as a as a as a sort of consolation. But just seeing a game of that scale and there had been such a build up in Brazil to the match. Neymar was injured and. Um, the kind of new icon was of the Brazilian team was David Luiz. You know, he suddenly was all over the TV coverage because of Neymar's injured. I'm, I'm the new leader of the team and he was on adverts. And, you know, the Brazilian media is incredible. They, within about a day, they had a David Luiz life story documentary out to build up to the game. And of course, <laughs> the inevitable happened to David Luiz in that match. But I, I'll never forget that game and the stunned atmosphere in, in Belo Horizonte. And also Fernandinho stopping and talking in the mix zone. I'll admire him forever for that because that must have taken some guts. None of the other Brazilians could face the press. Gregor, what was it like for you facing the press after your biggest defeat? <laughs> what press? <laughs> <laughs> I tried to think. I tried to. Th I, I just one just came to my mind to you actually. I, I also lost. Uh, I lost a game five nil to Brentford when I was at Crew Alexandra, and this is when Brentford were just been, you know, in the early throws of Matthew Benham's era. Five nil. I think that's my worst. But the 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 one that stands out for me was a four one defeat 
to Walsall when I was playing for Nottingham Forest. A pretty humbling result for Nottingham Forest in the Championship in 2003. And I just remember it because the team was like, the entire team was were on their sick beds. I remember you, you, go, you go and have a hotel stay in the afternoon somewhere near the Walsall area. <laughs> and uh, I was rooming with, with Stephen McPhail. Remember Stephen McPhail? The yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And he just spent the whole five hours or whatever we were supposed to be sleeping, coughing and spluttering. And, you know, he was in an awful state. And, and I was as well. And then we both had to play in the game. And I think Paul Merson was player manager. And, yeah, we got battered 4-1. It could have been more. And then it was one of those nights there was a massive fight in the changing room afterwards because people were calling each other out and I seem to remember people, lots of people trying to pin Marlon Harewood yeah. to the to the wall to prevent him from going for someone <laughs> who, will, who shall remain nameless. Uh, so, so that was a night to forget, but also, I suppose, in the end, remember. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Jonathan Northcroft, Gregor Robertson, thank you for being with me on this week's episode of The Game Podcast. Uh, we will be back on Monday. Thank you all for listening as well. Remember, if you enjoy the podcast, make sure you're subscribed and also make sure you're subscribed uh, for more of our award-winning journalism to The Times and The Sunday Times. If you sign up today, you'll get yourself one month free. Go online, check it out. It's thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game. We'll see you soon. Hold up. 